I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome once again to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon, and today... Well, let's get cracking with these words, the words that are the curse of the endurance athlete, monotony, staleness, overtraining, overreaching. We tell you to achieve consistency, and at the same time, we preach the power of rest. We command that you toughen up, and yet we tend to go really easy on the easy days. It's that balance between training and rest, toughness and smart training. Today, We're going to talk about integrating breaks, big rejuvenation. And we're also going to talk about restarting training and the value and the importance of what what I call post-season. How your actions at the end of a training cycle, at the end of a season, are likely to be the most important in setting you up for the opportunity for real performance gains and growth in the coming year. But before we talk about, well, taking it easy today... Let's talk about the word of the week. We like the way he thinks, serious with the wings. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. This week, the word of the week, it's mission. You see, it's improbable that you will consistently thrive and meet your goals without real mission and purpose. Whether we're discussing a company or an athlete, identifying mission is really helpful beacon to help you guide decision-making and setting forth a plan. I want to give you an example. I'm actually going to talk about us, Purple Patch. Let's think about our mission as a company. We talk about it being to educate and empower all human beings to reach their athletic potential through the lens that from athletic potential you reach human potential. Now, one can dismiss these words. They can just say, hey, this is just marketing speak. It's something to put on the website. But actually, these are critical words for us as a company, as well as a coaching team. You see, these guide all of our decisions, our programming, and our approach to coaching itself. So let's just dissect it and pull up our two or three examples that help frame our decisions for us as a company and us as a team. So we want to educate and empower. Remember, to educate and empower all human beings. So yes, we want to educate and empower. We don't want to just deliver training programs. It is a part of our mission to explain, to help our clients understand the why, and to set them up ultimately with a degree of autonomy in their own performance journey. We also talk about all human beings, We educate and empower all human beings. And that sounds expansive, but it's really important for us as a company because we don't just want to help elite athletes. In fact, ultimately, we don't even want to just help triathletes. Despite both of those being a big part of what we do on a daily basis, we want all to gain from what we believe is a really sound methodology and approach. And then the final part of that mission statement Through athletic potential, you reach human potential. 
That's really important. That governs so much of our discussion points as a coaching team because our mission isn't just to make athletes faster. It's actually to help clients improve their sports performance, yes, but also thrive in health, work and life performance. You see, ultimately, we want Purple Patch athletes to be the best version of themselves possible. It is why we consistently discuss integrating training into life and not just achieving results at the expense of health, work or relationships. So, yes, that's the Purple Patch mission. But you too can have your mission, an appreciation of why you're doing your sport and what you want the outcome to be, and ultimately how it fits into your overall life. For one person, it might be to, let's say, develop to a world-class level. And a mission statement that goes around that goal will drive the life commitments and the decisions that they have to ultimately likely make quite a lot of sacrifices to get to that very lofty ambition. But for another athlete, it might be to improve, but allow themselves to thrive across all aspects of life. And that statement, their mission statement, might anchor the lens of performance and set the tone for the context of your training, racing results, and what you're looking to achieve. In other words, your mission statement as it applies to sport creates the why. And it's from this place that you'll be empowered to begin to plan training, racing, and the overall approach. And if it's important for a company or a team to nail these simple statements down, I would argue it's really beneficial for you. What I'm trying to tell you is that I want you to avoid being a hamster on a wheel. Identify your mission. Begin to frame your why. It will not only become your guide in performance, but it will enable you to have concrete context in your decision making and, dare to believe, truly allow you to enjoy this crazy journey. And that is why the word of the week this week is mission. But now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. Yes, the main topic this week is, well, it's anchored in laziness, appropriate laziness. I'm going to tell you on the stepping stone of your thriving performance journey to take a break, to turn it off, to have a little excess. You see, you may be a triathlete, you may be an endurance athlete, you may be just a lifestyle of performance enthusiast. Whatever your goals, whatever your mission or sport, to evolve and improve long-term requires, and that word is said deliberately, requires Blocks of serious rejuvenation and rest. If you realise one thing today, whether in work, sport or life, I want it to be this. It is impossible to optimise performance if you never get off that hamster wheel. To grow requires rest. Now it's a startlingly simple concept and you can likely embrace it ultimately, at least logically, but what does it really mean? How? Should you integrate blocks of rejuvenation without throwing away all the good work and hard effort of the last months? Well, let's explore. Let's talk about it. And the first is we have to go back to training, what we're looking to achieve in training. So let's refresh on that. The mission of training is simple. Across all enthusiasts and athletes, from beginner to world class, the goal or the mission 
Remember that word of the week, the mission? The mission is to maximize training load while achieving positive adaptations. To maximize training load while achieving positive adaptations. It makes sense. And if you embrace this concept, then you must realize that ultimately the game that we play as performance-driven individuals is stress management, especially for those that have a time-starved life. You see, training delivers a specific stress, both hormonal and muscular, and it's applied to achieve a sport-specific adaptation. You get fitter, stronger, more powerful. But we must balance this with the stresses of work, life, travel, potential sleep loss, and of course, eating, either overeating or undereating, or maybe not the best quality of eating. See, I think you know this. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle, and we consistently fight to hold our grip on balancing these stresses. We can't think of them as mutually exclusive endeavors. The stress of life and lack of sleep and, and travel has a hormonal impact in the same way as applying intervals on the track or doing very hard hill repetitions on the bicycle. And so therefore it becomes a never-ending game of decisions of focus and priority. And for many of us, time becomes our most precious commodity because we have so many competing stresses and demands. Well, that means that the time or the chance for breathing room and relaxation is unfortunately a seldom-placed luxury. So with this game of balancing stress, now let's consider someone building towards a race. Of course, it's a natural human emotion that that race, that big thing that they're getting ready for, that they want to improve, they want to have a great day, it's going to amplify in your natural focus and energy. And in a time-starved life, that means that some of the things have to give a little bit. And typically, that might mean a little bit of focus on work. Shh, don't tell anyone. But yes, sometimes as we're leading into races, maybe we get a little distracted. Perhaps there's a little bit of sacrifice around family and social time. Why we want to bring our friends and our family into this game and get cooperation to make sure that at that time, yes, you're able to give back after this. And hopefully there's not too much sacrifice around recovery and sleep. But now the race is over. You're done. You are complete. Now, a great performance or a poor performance, the need to rest is key. But it's not intuitive for the driven and performance-minded. You see, that event, that big last race of the year that you're anchoring towards, the thing that has really created the shingle that you're hanging, if it's great and you have a wonderful performance, the natural emotion is, that was brilliant, I want more, let's get back to it. If it was a poor performance... Make up and redemption, a little bit of grieving, and then I didn't get my just desserts. I'm going back and I need to do more. Both are really normal emotions, but they're emotions that you have to resist. You need rest. At the end of a season, after an A race, it cannot be overstated. There is a power of rest. The body needs to rejuvenate. Well, why is that? Why is it? Well, I think there are several components to it. The first part is emotional. And understand this, any challenge, any puzzle, any project that we apply ourselves to, 
will always gain an amplification of passion and clarity if we enable ourselves to have a little bit of space. We step back from the project. Whether you're writing a book or building a coffee table or training to win a world championship, your project might be a labour of love, but actually stepping away and taking a break is a sure way to maintain that love. To fuel and recharge that passion is to gain perspective globally. And what this means in a practical sense is that you have to allow yourself time to have no focus on that thing that provides passion, no structure on the path to the end game of success. But by doing that, you emotionally recharge. And when you do re-engage, you are committed again. And often you refine, you reignite the true love. The second component of rest is, of course, physical. And when we think about endurance sports, there is undeniable wear and tear on your system, including, of course, your immune system and your hormonal system, as well as your muscles, tendons and ligaments. It all requires repair or ultimately you must face consequences. And that's the accumulation of hormonal or mechanical stress. The system will break without repair, no matter how smart you're training. The body demands it and it grows in strength and resilient with it. And so you should note when we think about that, we are enabling physical repair. That means that your form as an athlete or your fitness will drop. And this is really tough for athletes and people to understand, but it becomes a critical part of the cycle of performance. You cannot always be on. At least you cannot always be on without long-term consequence. And I find that this is one of the biggest lessons that is the toughest to get across and really marinate for amateur athletes. And it's why we spend so much time preaching about the journey and the cycles of training and the phases of progression. Well, when we combine the physical and the emotional, what occurs is that you will arrive with a clear opportunity for creating a path to longevity. And that word is magical in the performance world. Longevity. A block of rest, a break in focus and structure is the only route, the only route to carve a path for long-term development and performance gains year after year after year. And those that skip or avoid are typically those who plateau, face consistent injuries, and ultimately face burnout. They lose the passion. Great, you believe me. But the question is how? How do you approach a season break? How long should it be? What does the rest really mean? Do you just lie on the beach and do nothing except from drinking Mai Tais? Not such a bad thing if you ask me. How far down the line of no training should you go before you turn the focus back on? Well, that how is the critical piece and it comes in how you approach it and the timing. So here's the headline news. Here's the words that you'll remember. You don't need to become a sloth. Just because you drop the structure and the focus, you don't need to turn into a lazy sloth. In fact, a proper season break really entails this approach. Number one, two to three weeks of duration. A season break lasts that long, two to three weeks. And then we can experience a return to structured training. More on that later. In that two to three weeks, 
your mindset turns from being an athlete to a healthy human being. So you can shift away from being performance driven and simply be a normal, healthy human being. And that means that it can include some exercise. It means that you eat mostly healthy food. You try to get good sleep, but also have a pretty good leeway to have a little excess and a little fun. You see, we have this saying in Purple Patch, everything in moderation, including excess. So this is the time that, yeah, enjoy some later nights, have less training structure, enjoy some fun. It's a good time to relax and loosen the reins on structure. Of course, align with that, I'd encourage you to lose the metrics because any exercise is just that, exercise. You don't need to track or monitor output with heart rate or power meters and you shouldn't be pushing to be getting fitter. Globally, I suggest that a good litmus might be that you're exercising and notice I don't typically use that word, but you're exercising, not training, should be less than 50% of the hours of your normal training load. Next up, Mix it up. Try other things in this phase, whether it's yoga or hiking or mountain biking, even if it's Barry's boot camp. Have fun. Try different things. Do stuff with friends. But don't think that you're driving forward trying to become better in whatever your sport is. And with that, if you are mixing it up and you're losing the metrics and you have much less structure and your overall exercise routine is less than 50% of your normal training load, you have to appreciate, accept, and I would even say embrace a dipping form. Don't panic if you add a few pounds. You're going to lose a little fitness. You won't be race ready. It's normal, expected, and ironically, it's required. And in this time, you have the open and up door opportunity to lean into life. Embrace the other parts of your life. Read the newspaper. Enjoy some coffee. Spend more time with your kids. Give back to your partners and friends who accommodate you and enable you to follow your passion for so much of the year. And finally, don't obsess. As much as possible, turn your back on the sport. Since the Hawaii Ironman a couple of weeks ago, I have spoken to my elite athletes that race there no more than once. And I don't want to talk to them again for another week or so. I don't want to invade their life. I don't want to break up their little bit of postseason break with performance talk. That can all come later. And you, you can do the same. Give yourself leeway to have fun and be a normal, healthy human being. And I promise you that if you do this and embrace this, remember two to three weeks, it can become the bedrock of rejuvenation to set the path for a wonderful breakthrough next year. And it's vital. But, and there's always a but, you don't want your break to begin to spread into four, five, six, seven weeks. The magic tends to be at least two weeks, but no more than three. But great, then what? What does it mean? A simple return to heavy load, nose back to the grindstone? Absolutely not. Remember, a part of this rest and recuperation is that you should and will lose fitness and fall. And so upon returning, you have to rebuild. And this is what we call postseason. I would argue that this is probably the most critical phase of the season because it delivers the ability to evolve technically, 
and the platform of readiness to accept the very hard work that is going to be coming up in what we call pre-season or the build phase because that's where you're going to be building physiology and fitness. And ultimately, if you successfully execute post-season, it's going to minimize your risk for future injury and maximize the opportunity from the adaptations of that hard work coming up next. And so if you're a fitness enthusiast or you're a training athlete, you have to pick a time, quite typically for the North American athletes, somewhere in the fall, at the end of your big race, where you have a break, two to three weeks, turn it off. and then you hit what we call the preparatory phase of work or postseason. So we're not going to dive all the way in to postseason today because the main focus of this discussion is rest and break. But I'll give you the headline news on postseason. Number one, it is a phase of training which has your lowest training stress. So outside of that break where you really cut it off, for the next four, five, six, seven, eight weeks, you've got relatively low stress of training. It doesn't mean everything is easy or everything is low intensity, but the overall load is relatively low. And that opens up the doorway when physical stress is low. It enables us to really focus on technical development. So this is a great time to focus down on improving your running form, getting better on bike fit and position, maybe buying some new equipment, really focusing on the technical improvements in swimming. In the physical training side, as you're going through the technical development, this is also the phase of the year that is providing the bedrock of preparatory training. So in other words, gradually building fitness and developing the resilience and robustness around the muscles, tendons and ligaments so that when you ramp up the load, you increase the intensity, the body is ready to accept it without, without getting injured. So we've got low volume, we've got globally a lower training load, we're focusing on technique, but we do have one other thing that we can focus on here which if you were an Ironman athlete or a half Ironman athlete or a marathon runner, is at the other end of the scale of what you would typically do. And that's this word that most of you guys like, speed. You can do a whole bunch of pretty high speed work. In fact, you do a bunch of sprinting. You can do some very fast stuff that's really focused on improving the top end. And in fact, creating the connection and an ever-improved connection between your brain and your muscles. Now, throughout this phase of training, typically four to eight weeks in duration, you also have two other chances. And that is, first, keep mixing it up. I think this is a great time that if you were a triathlete, don't ride the time trial bike, get on the mountain bike, get on the cross bike. If you're living in the winter climates, and then get on a fat bike and play in the snow. It's a wonderful tool to use the road bike so that you can improve your interactions on the bicycle. So mix it up. It doesn't all need to be heavy training. You can go hiking. You can do running off-road on the trail. You can have a whole bunch of leeway and stuff, but with your central sessions of the week still focusing on technical development, speed, and preparing the muscles for the type of heavy lifting work that you're going to be doing later. And so for all athletes, as well as fitness enthusiasts, I view postseason as critical because, as mentioned before, 
It'll help stave off injury. It will maximize the results that you get from the work coming up, but it'll also continue to enable specificity and progression without losing consistency, but also without creating fatigue. And so in this phase, embrace the freedom, the lower load. And I promise you, the tough work is coming and it's coming soon. But we want you to be ready physically and ready emotionally so that when the key time of the year, when you want to be performing at your best, you're still fresh physically and you've got all of the fitness yields, but also passion is still there. So remember, when you go into postseason, you're going to start out of form. Fitness will be lower, much lower than the height of your peak of training and performance, which was just a few weeks ago. And so I'd encourage you, shift expectations. Expect and anticipate and aim for lower outputs. But focus on the doing and focus on the doing well. And slowly and patiently allow the fitness to rise just incrementally. The key thing that you can do is set the tone of habits and doing things really well. I encourage you not to chase quick gains. And this is a time that, yeah, you can begin tracking. But in tracking your performance or measuring how you're doing objectively and subjectively, it's a wonderful thing to do, but you shouldn't be tracking to chase immediate performance gains. Instead, set the lens. Hey, I want to see a yield, a performance yield in a couple of months time. But for just now, I'm going to track it. I'm going to measure it, but I'm just going to do and do well. So yeah, don't be a sloth. Enjoy your break. But know that it's the first step of a great cycling year of progression. And after that two or three weeks, don't let it go four, five, six, seven weeks. Come back and nail postseason because that is the thing that consistently we see is the bedrock of the biggest performance yields of athletes of all levels. But ironically, for you guys, the Looney Tune guys, the rest is the toughest part to nail. Why don't this year we get it right? All right, good stuff. So that was taking a break. Yes, I promised you we would talk about laziness, and we did. But let's go to questions of the week. So this week, we've got time for one question. And this comes from Philip. And Philip is in North Carolina. We've had a lot of international questions over the last weeks, but this time we're going to keep it stateside. We're going to North Carolina and Philip's asking a question around the snorkel. So the question is this. I've seen quite a lot in the triathlon world, the utilization of a snorkel, and I'm really interested in the why. I'm all for trying new toys and new tools if they're going to help me, but why would we use a snorkel in swimming? Don't we want to get used to the breathing? So it's a great question, Philip. And let me say this. First, I'd rank the snorkel as one of the key pieces of equipment for a triathlon swimmer. But I realize that when you first start using it, it might be less a tool of technical development and more feeling like it's a medieval torture device. Don't worry. Typically, about eight to 10 swims, you start to get used to it. You get used to the breathing. You get become more comfortable. And in fact, in our squad in San Francisco, where we have athletes from our pros all the way down to a lane that we call World War II, because they're not deserving of a lane number, they all use the snorkel and they all enjoy it and embrace it. 
But why is it useful? Well, let's first talk about alignment. I think alignment is a key characteristic in swimming success. And really what that means is if we divide the body in half, so center line down the middle of the body from top to bottom, everything that is on the right side of the body wants to stay on the right side of the body. So if your hand is entering the water, that wants to land somewhere between the center line or midline and the line of your shoulder. And from this place, you want to grab the water, often referred to as the catch, and then accelerate that water back behind you. And that's the thing that obviously creates propulsion. Well, throughout this process, hand entry, grab and acceleration, that hand, if we're talking about the right hand, should never cross the midline or go outside of that channel. That is the element that creates good alignment and symmetry of the body and pull. When we add a snorkel, it really helps with the awareness. Head position naturally self-corrects, and you can actually see as you're swimming your hand entry in the peripheral out front. Your eyes aren't looking straight forward, but you can see hand entry. You can see when you're pulling. And as you're not rotating your head to breathe, you have more awareness of creating that alignment. So the second piece of it is actually around the breathing as well, in parallel to really the point above. The part of the stroke for most swimmers that causes a breakdown is the rotation of the head to breathe. You see, this action is often mistimed and creates all sorts of cascading negative issues, including pressing the hand down and losing the actual hold or grab or catch on the water and crossing the midline or dropping out of alignment. So, so often swimmers are stuck rushing the pool without having the patience because the rotation of the head creates instability and a lack of awareness. And so, with a snorkel, we remove it. We get the head to stay in alignment and there's an increasing alignment and it enables patience before the pull. And therefore, you get a better understanding and feeling of what that alignment is. And so, therefore, you are best equipped to create better propulsion and better timing. And then the third use of the snorkel comes in that element, timing. You see, in swimming, just like it would be in swinging a golf club or throwing a ball, there needs to be a connection between your pulling arm and your hips. So much of optimal power is the timing of the pull with the hips. So like a flowing golf swing, those connections to the hips creates maximal propulsion. But breathing with the rotation of the head forces a loss of that connection for less experienced athletes. And so they can never evolve. They can never feel that great whoosh that comes with a perfectly timed stroke. Put on a snorkel. You are much more likely to feel the connection and gain an appreciation of the rhythm, a key part of swimming, the rhythm and connection of the stroke. Now, of course, that's a great tool. I talked about taking and removing the breathing, finding and having awareness and alignment, getting the timing and the connection of the hips. But this tool is only going to be useful if you go back and forth between snorkel and swimming to bridge the gap between the benefit of snorkel swimming and real world swimming. Put together, the snorkel becomes a learning tool for alignment, timing and connection. But of course, with any tool, to make sure that the learning sticks, it has to be applied. And that means following every belt of snorkel swimming with real swimming. And for you as the swimmer, Philip, you must then say, how do I apply the feeling that I get with the snorkel and try and correlate it to real world swimming? And over time, the gap is bridged and you become a more aligned, a more powerful swimmer.
I would add one thing as well with the snorkel is it's not always used alone. So it's quite common for me to ask you to swim with a snorkel to help reset alignment and timing, but also adding things like an ankle strap where you're bounding the ankles together and maybe an additional buoy. And that's going to force proper posture and improve your strength and power with the pull. Now, typically in this case, I tend to use no paddles for the work as I really want the athlete to find the purchase of the water and enable improvement in pulling power by tethering the ankles over simply adding surface area with the pulling hand. So I hope that helps, Philip. Now, go and embrace the snorkel. It's a wonderful tool and you've only got eight more swims left and it's going to start to feel like it's your best friend. So let's finish off today. Um, As ever, if you want to ask questions, we're always here. We're still getting lots of questions. We had a week off last week, but it's questions at purplepatchfitness.com. In the the show notes this week, I'm going to add in a little bit of a showcase of how we set up the season and the different phases of training so that you can have a look there and hopefully get a little bit of an understanding of how we build the season. And that should give you some context over everything we talked around laziness and taking a proper break. But what were the lessons this week? Well, I think the key lessons, number one, remember, let's go back to word of the week, mission. It's vital that you have a mission so that you can understand the why and the how. And then when we talked about the meaner potatoes this week, life and performance is not a hamster wheel. You have to realize that in the cycle of training, in the journey of your route to improve performance, if you want gains and then gains and then gains, in other words, long-term development, the only way to do it is not to be on at all times. Instead, it is cycle of progression. We need structure. We don't need random. We don't need exercise. We need training. But in that training, it's important also to turn off and so when you do reach that time of the year when it is time to refresh embrace it turn off be willing to lose form be willing to lose fitness and then gradually rebuild as a refounding moment for yourself building off of the last year's training that now you can set great habits develop technically and start to gradually and very patiently improve your fitness and physiological parameters. And then as you build in, you'll be ready for the hard work ahead. So I hope that helps today. We've got some super guests coming up in the coming weeks. But for now, take it easy. We're back on charge. Keep performance in the front of your mind. Take care.